Hello, I'm Amanda Lynch Foster, and welcome to this podcast from the Caribbean Development Bank, where we discuss the issues and ideas which can advance the region's development agenda. In this episode, we're bringing you a heavy-hitting discussion centered on the seeds, climate change, the Caribbean, and concessional financing. And let's add another seed to that, criteria. Specifically, the criteria and measurements which the global community uses to assess how and who accesses the concessional financing needed for development, and what really is fair for a region that too frequently finds itself on the front lines of climate change. It came out of the second edition of our President's Chat, a new dialogue forum introduced by the bank, which brings thought leaders and decision makers together to explore issues of regional significance. This edition featured special guest Prime Minister of Barbados, the Honorable Mia Amor Motley, in discussion with CDB President Dr. Jean Leon. Governor of the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank, Mr. Timothy Antoine, moderated the forum. Let's listen in. Very often people want to know what's the connection with all these things that you're all doing regionally and internationally with how people living on the street and, and how people trying to find jobs in, in our country. You heard me just now speak about the absolute need for governments to be able to lead the fiscal stimulus. And the real problem that we're going to have, which, which we have to watch, is the fact that we have a large accumulation of savings still, but we don't have the appropriate instruments to be able to ensure that those savings can help us in financing much of the stimulus that we were just talking about. And that bothers me. But at the straight public sector level, we continue to fight the battles, regrettably, that, that preclude us from accessing the concessional financing. And a large part of it is due to archaic and, and crude measurements that bear no relationship to our needs or our reality. Um, and of course, you know that I'm talking about the use of historic per capita GDP to determine whether countries should borrow or not. We were fortunate enough to break the logjam for Barbados and Bahamas yeah. with the World Bank yeah. in the last year. But that, I mean, I'm telling you, the amount of heavy lifting that that took us. And, and ultimately, we were able to point out that exceptional access was given to countries like Latvia and Korea. And therefore, there was no justifiable basis for excluding Barbados and the Bahamas from concessional funding at the World Bank, particularly in the middle of a pandemic and particularly in the face of the climate crisis. In addition to that, we have to be able in our own circumstances to recognize that there are some structural issues that have caused people to have concern and we can't avoid it. And, and, and a large part of it in the Caribbean, regrettably, has been the runaway, of exp runaway expenditure of state-owned enterprises that perhaps don't have the same level of governance um, protections and oversight yeah. as, as central government does. And, and we need to be able to modernize that while at the same time not becoming a slave to a, a system that will not allow us to be nimble and not allow us to facilitate um, expenditure and the services that are so urgently needed by many of our citizens. The other reality is that we have, as I said, to find ways of mobilizing private funds and savings. Um, I think, Governor, you guys told us that there are about 50 billion US dollars in savings in the region. It might be a little less now because we know that everybody has had to draw down on savings in the last 18 months to survive. But we have to find a way of unlocking at least, in my view, 2.5% of that in order to be able to start the process 
of, of, of finance and development within the region. The difficulty is, is that there's a lot of nervousness because people are not sure whether existing governments will have to do further reprofiling re, re, re or restructuring of debt and therefore they wonder what their position will be in that context so that i really do believe that the most urgent thing is for governments also to determine what is the message that they want to send to the market both local regional and international in terms of their debt structure and how they believe they can finance the medium term to long term development that is so critical while in the same time accessing the liquidity to meet the um, short term cash flow needs. So a lot of things, um, but a lot of it depends still on our engagement with the international community and getting them to understand that their international financial architecture too is not necessarily suited to the needs of small states such as ours. And I give this last example as I've done over and over. How can you, the IMF says that in 2020, you basically had an expansion of what, $20 trillion, of which 19 trillion was in the handful of advanced economies, primarily through the use of quantitative easing, which they can do with ease. The DSSI, which was trumpeted as that anchor separate from the common debt framework, was supposed to be for those countries who were low income and who needed to be able to have the flexibility of suspending their debt service. They reckon that that at maximum would have been $12 billion. Well, even if it was the $12 billion, how small is that? compared to 19 trillion. And, and that continues to be the case. The UN Secretary General told us Monday morning that the average advanced economy expanded and was able to use 28% of GDP as a fiscal stimulus. The middle-income countries, 6%, and low-income countries, less than 2%, 1.8%, I believe. So therein lies the story of really what has happened in the last 20 months. Inequity at its worst and a, 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 and a strangling out now some of it may be structural in that both the imf and the bretton woods in um and the world bank as bretton woods institutions were formed when our countries did not exist and therefore they're not structured and gene you're better off at speaking like this because you work with them they're not structured in that way easily to be able to meet our immediate needs and at the same time when you look at the fact that a lot of the accumulation of the debt that they're concerned about in our region hasn't come from corruption or hasn't come from, from, um, from profligacy alone, it has also come from the reality of having to absorb shocks decade after decade after decade, whether it was yes. in the loss of productive capacity with the WTO, post-WTO, or whether it was uh, environmental as we're seeing now, um, and the reality is that these things have been now judged against us, but at the same time, we need to be able to accept our responsibility for doing what we can to remove the structural issues, while at the same time persuading them to recognize that if you're going to ask us to be able to meet the needs of a climate crisis, then you cannot hold us to a 60% debt to GDP um, fiscal anchor, you've got to look for adaptation funds that, and preferably grant funds within the context of adaptation funds that will not add to our debt stock because we don't have the room to add to it. But yet it is because of your greed and wicked behavior that the greenhouse gas emissions are causing us these problems. So this is complex, but it is not impossible. And I think that if we want to pursue the advocacy with the international institutions to 
settle among ourselves the message we want to send to our own domestic and regional markets as to what we're going to do such that they have confidence and are prepared to meet yeah. us halfway with in terms of the private financing and three start to look after the international agenda with respect to adaptation funds because the truth is that the majority of our public sector expenditure going forward is going to have to be to adapt to the climate crisis because it looks as though the world will not stop at 1.5 degrees and we know what happens post 1.5 degrees. It means that we are going to have to take a lot of preventive and adaptive action in order to protect our citizens and our infrastructure. Right, right. So, so Prime Minister, I think you're clearly setting out your stall here for the region in the spec of COP26, where we, you are clearly advocating for a shift from uh, mitigation to adaptation in terms of financing. Right now, the setup is sort of 20% adaptation, 80% uh, mitigation. We need to switch that formula to give us that access. So I think that's, if I heard you correctly, you are yeah. making that point very clearly yeah. now. The, the yes. truth is the international community has switched it for us. All of them have said, come, we need to be ambitious. We need to have high ambition. But in truth and in fact, on almost every instance, all of the major countries of the world are still below the necessary ambition that would allow us to stay at 1.5. So if we are not going to be able to keep the 1.5, then all like now we have to start building, I mean, and adapting because look at it. They expect 1.5 to be in 13 years or so. 13 years is the blink of an eye, especially when it comes to infrastructural projects. So what are you going to do to defend your coastal um, economy? Because most of us have a coastal economy. What are we going to yes. do to defend the critical infrastructure? Barbados Light and Power is near the coast. I mean, there are a whole host of other pieces of critical infrastructure that are near the coast. Can we afford to go and rebuild hospitals that may be like ours within less than a mile from the coast? These are serious issues. And as I keep saying, what makes it even more egregious? And, and, and I can talk as if you and I talk in wrong shop. If I throw stuff in at your yard, as I've said over, and I dirty up your yard, and you now have to go and find the money to clean up your yard, that is the money you had put down to buy food for the house and to pay the rent or the mortgage. So that you can't expect me to do both. And what makes it worse, had it not been for me throwing it in your yard, you wouldn't have that problem. So that the issue of climate justice and the issue of the morality of what is taking place cannot be divorced. And I don't think Caribbean leaders or Pacific leaders should walk away from an insistence as well that we need to conclude the arrangements for the Warsaw Mechanism on loss and damage. Because fundamentally, if this happened within our domestic boundaries, we would be looking to sue somebody under, under the law of tort. Uh, Tim, if I can just add uh, something here. Yes, I think yes, it, sure would be, it would be important to unpack the current reality when we start thinking how we use measures. So we talk about the 60% debt to GDP. But I think it's equally clear, those of us who have lived, for example, through hurricanes, that a lot of that debt is maybe simply the money that you are borrowing to rebuild after a hurricane goes by. Uh, part of it is, if you want, related to climate effects. And so we have to be able to make one of two arguments. Either that the 60% is not the appropriate definition to use in countries that have high vulnerability, or we yes. need to unpack exactly. 
exactly. we need to unpack the current debt to GDP ratios by partialing out those elements that are not out of our doing, as it were, the policy-induced errors or failures. Leave those yeah. aside because we can take responsibility for those. But those we are not responsible for, you should be able to unpack those so that you could genuinely say the relevant, effective debt-to-GDP ratio that you should be accountable for is much, much less than what it is now. And so I think that's a definitional, unpacking, attributing type of concept we should be pushing a little more. Absolutely. And the point that I want to make as we do that, we need to, so if it is green debt, put the green debt one side. If it is COVID debt, as I said, put that one side. And let's go back. I, I'm not going to tire saying it. The British government in the last century understood that it could not service its debt incurred during the war to fight the war while at the same time going to borrow new money to reconstruct Britain after the war. And therefore, it put its wartime debt into perpetuity so that they were not crowded out in being able to access funds. When we say we need a Marshall Plan for the region, and I see that my brother and, and the president of Ghana is making the same point for Africa. What he is saying and what we are saying is this. Look, and I call it the seas, the consequences of colonialism. We became independent and there was no development package left for us, but we had to deal with the absolute misery of persons who needed housing, education, healthcare, etc. And that has been a multi-generational fight. Similarly, yeah. we've had to fight um, the climate crisis now. We've had to fight the COVID. We've had to fight chronic yeah. non-communicable diseases that has caused healthcare to be the largest growing category of expenditure, public expenditure in all of our countries in the last few decades. And in that, I include water because water is a consequence also of, of the climate crisis, the absence of the groundwater and the aging of the infrastructure, which of course was built when Britain had an empire and France had an empire, all we got is countries. So they could finance that infrastructure because of what they were extracting from our countries. So believe you me, we are losing, we are going to lose more money in the climate crisis than the develop, developed world believes that we are entitled in the next decade for development funding. Now, you can't tell me that we are talking about five, six billion dollars for a region that potentially can lose that in three or four climatic events across five or six countries. And, and that is my difficulty with what we're doing. Similarly, Africa is making the same point that they too feel that the extraction of wealth from their countries over the years left them with a development deficit at the point of independence. They too are complaining that because of the way how the world is structured, and that's why I've asked UNCTAD to start the work on looking at what can be safe assets in our part of the world, because there is no way two countries with the same credit rating like Ghana and Greece should be borrowing at excessively different interest rates largely because yes. one belongs to the European Union that has some safe assets. And what makes all of this even more ludicrous? Who is it that helps keep their safe assets and gives them reserve status? What do we purchase? Who purchases? All the talk when then it is us keeping them alive to our own peril. So we have to change the discussion. We absolutely must. We absolutely must. So, 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 Prime Minister, just a couple of things. I mean, is there going to be an extension of, for access for 
Barbados and the Bahamas, for example. I know this is something you fought very hard for. Is there any sense that there will be some extension of that access beyond this year? I suspect so. I mean, there's been no absolute clarity. Look, when, when the letters were written last year, they told us that the exceptional access was for the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, when I wrote back, I said, thank you for the access for COVID-19 pandemic and the climate crisis, because I don't know how you can separate the two. And that is the basis upon which our discussions have been going with the World Bank. I think that there's a sensitivity to these issues. There is a reluctance to settle on a multidimensional vulnerability index. Um, and everybody is saying, oh, everybody is going in different, different directions and this and that. But I do believe that there is a recognition that vulnerability is the one of the most important um, criteria that we will need to assess in determining whether countries should access funding. And you're hearing it from the UN Secretary General, you're hearing it from the IMF Managing Director, Kristalina Gorgiva, who really has tried her best, I believe, and, 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 and continues to be that voice for the developing world and bringing some level of balance with what we've been getting. Um, so <clears throat> I'm not sure that we'll get the um, index. We've been fighting for it for three decades. But we'll continue to fight. But if we can at least get recognition of the criteria, that's one step in the right direction. And I keep saying, let us claim ground and then move again. And if we can claim yes. ground on vulnerability as an important criteria to be assessed, then we'll move ground towards the index eventually. But what we do accept is that simply the use of GDP, and I think the UN Secretary General makes this point over and over. At the end of the day, when you cut down trees, that's a boost in GDP because of how you spend, but is that sustainable development? Which is the point I think Gene was making in his opening remarks to us. So we really have to be in the vanguard um, in the same way that previously Caribbean economists were in the vanguard in the late 50s and 60s and 70s of development policy. We need to be in the vanguard of what kind of measurements that we use. And I'll give you two more examples of the crude and crass um, measurements that are used that perhaps reflect more an ease of doing business for the people who use them rather than a, a commitment to assessing accurately the reality of countries. When this pandemic started, they told us that those countries that had a certain, um, below a certain level of maternal mortality would get f um, grant finance or concessional finance for therapeutics and PPE. So all like Barbados mm -hmm. and Bahamas and others again would be outside because of course we are now being penalized for being faithful to the development project of being able to sustain our, our, our social um, criteria and our people. Similarly, this notion of blacklisting with the Financial Action Task Force, you would know better than me, Governor, that a large part of it came as a result of the redefinition of money supply from M2 to M3. And all of a sudden, a bunch of countries you didn't expect to be doing X, Y, or Z are in a different weight category, being judged by different criteria, and all of a sudden now found, found negligent and being put on a list. When in truth and in fact, it was simply the different use of the definition for money supply that would have caused and precipitated that kind of activity, not anything on our part. So I really feel that we have to continue our advocacy 
um, in the international community. You cannot be absent because if you're absent, they're going to make judgments about you and try to impose one-size-fits-all prescriptions that cannot allow us or do not give us the policy space or the, or, the, or the fiscal space to do the things that we have to do to make life better for our citizens and to grow our economy in an inclusive and green way. I wanted to follow up on a point the Prime Minister made with regard to the vulnerability. Um, as she noted, we've been at this for the last 30 years, and we have not really made progress. Now, it is not the case, it is not the case that it is not acknowledged that GDP per capita or national income per capita is not adequate or appropriate. But everyone hides behind it out of it being simple. Uh, but they do indicate, if you look at the United Nations, the multi multilateral development uh, group, they talk about the national income per capita, the human development index, and vulnerability. But we do not know how they blend. We don't know the formula. The most we know is that the national income per capita is the dominant metric. So you either graduate once you get past a certain number, or even if your HDI is uh, very high, the fact that your income is not sufficiently there, they will actually discount the HDI simply to put the extra weight on the, on the um, national income. But I think the, the point about vulnerability I wanted to make uh, is, if we keep focusing on just the vulnerability index, multidimensional or otherwise, we will not be able to convince in a very significant way the fact that our seeds are different. And I'll, I'll tell you what I, I mean by this. We have to see the vulnerability measure as not being one aggregate number that we can say if you get past it, you get, and if you don't, you don't get. Because the truth is, vulnerability has in effect three parts. The first is almost the probabilistic aspect of my susceptibility to some event occurring. And that tends to be where we spend most of the time. But if you think about this well from a climate perspective, not aggregate vulnerability, climate perspective, the US can claim that they have the same probability of being hit by a hurricane as any of our islands on any one year. And truth is, the Cat 5 hurricane that hits Dominica hits the US, and so they are just as vulnerable. So when the Canadian um, at the UNCTAD 15 makes the point that um, they are looking at the robustness of measures and the universality of the application of measures, we run a problem of can we demonstrate that we are very different. But if you go past the probability side, the susceptibility, and you start looking now at pre-event, the event actually occurring, which we will say now is the magnitude of that particular event, which will depend on not only whether it's a cat three, cat four, but equally the state you were in before the event occurs, your level of development, how small you are. Um, and the fact that when you are hit, your whole country 
Wipe out risk. Wiped out rather than just maybe one state in the United States. And then you link that to what I am referring to as the duration of recovery. Dominica is 10 years before it can get back. The U.S., even under Katrina, is a few years. So duration is an that important... that was 1% of GDP. Yes. Sorry? Dominica was 220% of that's GDP. No, that, that's in terms of the magnitude, how we measure yeah, it. Yeah, but the duration, yeah, yeah. the duration is the yeah, length yeah. of time it takes between when you get hit and when you actually get back to where you were. And it yeah. is that duration that I think is our single most point of departure, where we can say categorically our seeds are very different because it yeah. takes you X number of years, seven years, 10 years, and that's just to build back GDP. Even if you take the pandemic, we just had COVID, which had impacts on social, educational, gender, um, poverty, when we talk of building back before you get to real growth, it's not just the GDP. It is, in fact, all those measures of development before you can talk of, of getting back. So that recovery phase, the duration, the persistence of that drag we face is really what we need to measure. And if we can measure that, uh, Prime Minister and Governor, I think we may be in a position to say that there is need for an adjustment an adjustment to this per capita GDP, which is more in the nature of a compensating variation. That yes, we are $10,000 per capita today, but if it will take us five, seven years after a hurricane hits, or we have a pandemic, to get back to exactly that same per capita GDP in seven, 10 years time, then this is not growth to begin with, but it's equivalent to saying, that our per capita GDP is in effect $2,000 because it will take you seven years to move from 2,000 to the 10,000 that you would be back after that point in time. And so we need to measure this, propose it, and augment the vulnerability index as a means of actually making that case as to why we are different, why we need special treatment, why we need lower case financing, because we are not growing during that recovery phase.